Kit, how's it going? Uh, looks great. Great. Have a look at my t-shirt. This is, this is, this is my perspective. No problem. That was the first uh, thing I noticed, and I thought it was so fitting that you were wearing that, of all people. It's very interesting. Um, I mean, and this will be part of the story that I want to tell you today. We, we decided that we were going to talk about low back pain today. Mm-hmm. I just wanted to start out with a kind of tangential perspective on these kinds of things, and that is a very, very skillful teacher told me once, he said, look. Pain is a sensation. Suffering is the story your mind tells you about it. Now, I really had to think long and hard about this. But I had the experience once, and it was actually with him. He also suffers, as I do, from occasional low back pain. And there's lots of different reasons for that, and we'll get into that later. Um, But I had the experience with him where we were lying on two couches. They were 90 degrees to each other, the way I used to have my lounge room set up. And he was in massive pain, and I was in massive pain, and we were both just laughing hysterically about the zap. Oh! That was a good one. Shit, that one was painful, etc., etc. This just went on for a couple of hours. Now, it, it sounds crazy to say this, but there was absolutely no suffering in those moments. And that, that experience actually changed my relationship to physical pain forever. Okay. It's just a, a sort of once-off experience, and literally the next time I experienced pain, I was simply aware of it as a sensation. Now, when I say suffering is a story you tell yourselves about it, here's, here's my version of it. And we can only ever speak from our own experience in these things, right? Mm. Um, here I am. I'm the author of a book called Overcome Neck and Back Pain, and it's in its fourth edition now, soon to be fifth. Um, I run workshops and seminars on this subject all around the world. Um, I'm, I'm a noted expert in back pain, and I'm suffering back pain myself. Now, that's just, you know, that's the wrongness of it. And there's an immense, and anyone who has back problems will tell you, there's an immense amount of resentment and often anger in this, especially if you think you're doing the right things, the things that are designed to, you know, bulletproof you from low back pain. I used to know, I should say, some of the world's strong men, and plenty of them suffer from back pain too. But, it, but here's the big thing. It doesn't stop them doing the things they want to do. And so whilst it is actually possible to overcome back pain completely if you for periods of time and, and it can be for long periods of time, might be months, if not years on occasions, without any kind of back pain whatsoever. And exploring the same kinds of things that you and Justin do. And so these are things that test your physical limits all the time. And I'm still doing that. And so every now and again I'll tweak something and I think, oh yeah, that's gonna hurt a bit. Um, and I do other things and you know within a within a few days or sometimes it's only a few hours, it's just a memory. And so that's the, that's the state that we hope that our patients and students get to. Firstly, a change relationship with something that's seen by most people as a you know, major affliction. <clears throat> and you can't even read an article on low back pain without you know, um, hearing stories about how, much, how many billions it costs the economy each year and blah, blah, blah. When I say pain is a sensation and suffering is a story, you tell yourself about that. I'm not going all Pollyanna on you. I'm not... I'm not running some or offering some kind of mind game on on the problem. It is totally debilitating. I've had, in my own personal history, I've had back pain so badly at one stage when I was living in Japan that I had to crawl to get to the toilet in the morning each day. I'm, that's no exaggeration. And that went on for six months, actually. And there's definite pathology in my spine. But it absolutely does not matter at all now. And I can do anything with my body. Well, you've seen what I can do with my body. And 
I'm old now too, old by contemporary <laughs> But it, it just doesn't make any difference. And so that's another thing too we need to really, I mean, you're a, you're a young guy, so it makes no difference to you at your age. But the fact is, we're having our ideas about what's expected at each decade in human life all the time by the, the models that are used for advertising, by how characters are portrayed on TV and film and all the rest of it. And the fact is, the part of the subliminal message that's coming in all the time is, well, you know, now you're 40 or now you're 50, you're going to have to slow down, but you're going to have to do X, Y, and Z, you're going to have to not do, you know, P, Q, and R. All of that stuff is nonsense. It's complete nonsense. The reason, of course, that, that these myths persist is that if we're not doing anything to help ourselves, it is accurate that the body just, you know, gets on a slow decay in fact, for some people, it can be an extremely rapid decay after the age of 35 or 40, and I'm sure you've seen this too. I've seen colleagues of mine who um, I went to school with, and they look and move like old men. They are old men. They're old men because they don't have that movement quotient that you and Justin have been you know, on about for a very long time now. And, of course, we've been on for a very long time too. Yes. Anyway, look, that's why I've, I've said the, the key thing that I wanted to say for today. So just ask me some <laughs> questions because, and I'm just going to set the scene here. Um, Sean emailed me uh, a while ago, maybe a couple of weeks ago now, and saying that you had a patient or one of your students, I think, I'm not quite sure which word you used, who was not responding to what you guys use in your standard protocol for dealing with these things and I assume it uses various kinds of movement screens, you have various muscular tests that you do, you probably have um, a, a skeletal analysis system of some kind. Tell me what else you do. Uh, I mostly look at movement patterns and test for you know balance strength and specifically like the type of strength associated with the athlete and then through getting to know them better understanding what their emotional relationship is with pain. Right. And that's, I mean, that's kind of what led me to reach out to you is investigating the relationship between you know, chronic back pain versus acute back pain. So as, you know, as a trainer or a strength coach, we deal very frequently with acute cases of back pain. But mm -hmm. the, the case of chronic back pain, I think, is, is unique and individual. And yes. I know that you have a great deal of experience with chronic back pain, and I always feel most comfortable um, educating my athletes in overcoming pain that I've dealt with myself. Yes. So if this client or you know any of any of my clients have chronic shoulder issues, I'm very comfortable um, re-educating their scapula, for mm. example. But chronic back pain is is not something that I've dealt with myself, and mm. um, it's not something that. I deal with regularly, and the the common um, fixes from, from physical therapy and from the strength and conditioning world have not worked in this case. Well, um, my speciality is not just chronic pain, but recurring low back pain, which is actually the most common kind of chronic pain when people talk about chronic. Um, and for members of our audience who may not know, um, the technical distinction between acute and chronic. Chronic is normally described as pain which doesn't change. Now, in fact, when you look at it more closely, very, very, very few sufferers of low back pain actually have chronic low back pain. Almost everyone that you talk to, and I'd be very interested in whether or not <clears throat> your student is among this group, 
the majority of people will tell you, even though they describe themselves as, yeah, I've got back problems, when you ask them, and this is always my first question, do you have good days and bad days? And they say, oh, yeah, sure. Uh, there are plenty of times when I don't have it at all. So we're not talking truly about chronic pain here. We're talking about recurring low back pain. And that is the most common by far. And so what happens is if you think about a time slice, a person will come down with an acute attack of low back pain today, say, brought about by maybe gardening on the weekend or, you know, whatever it is, jump, box jumping or who knows, something. And they'll go to their um, chiropractor or osteopath or, or GP on the Wednesday or Thursday, typically how long these things take to manifest. And look, what we're really looking at here, just as a side thing, if it's athletically um, created, it's probably very deep delayed onset muscle soreness manifesting. But if the mat, if that muscle soreness manifests in quadratus lumborum and erectus spiny, your back will go into spasm and you'll think, shit, I've really, I've really hurt myself this time. In fact, it's just another muscular event for the most part. Now, there are exceptions to this, and we'll go through these things in detail, but the one exception to that is piriformis syndrome. And I can honestly say that we probably know more about piriformis syndrome than most practitioners on the planet. And it is something that, that not only is a problem in its own right, it's piriformis syndrome. Um, I'll just take a step back. When I say piriformis syndrome, I'm talking about unrelenting sciatica or pain down one or both legs that, that feels like it originates in the hips. It's, it's intense in the outer hamstring, often felt in the, in the outer part of the calf muscle and even affects the foot. In fact, I've seen piriformis syndrome um, so acute in one person that she had dropped foot which normally is associated with disc-induced impingement, that is to say the disc is impinging on some part of the segmental nerve and actually impeding the body's capacity to communicate with that part and drop foot as a result. And, and that's regarded as what's called a neurological deficit. Neurological deficit, normally you push that person onto a specialist and they end up in surgery. Sure. Now, well, and and the, the, the fact is, though, that the... There are too many false positives in this whole scenario. What I mean by that is it's very common for people to, for example, to have something like, let's say, numbness in the foot or a drop foot or something like that. They'll go off to have an MRI done and pathology will be found in the system and the problem will be attributed to pathology, even though there's an interposing cause, piriformis syndrome as a potential cause at least, that can mimic every symptom of full full disconduced sciatica, every symptom without exception. And so what happens is people frequently have back operations and when they come out of the operation, the, the, the pathology has been fixed, quote-unquote, but the problem is still there because the wrong problem has been treated. In fact, until we wrote extensively about piriformis syndrome and came up with some very effective tests for it, and also, and far more importantly, very effective treatment for it. We've got four really good piriformis exercises which absolutely will overcome that problem in time. And I've had this problem myself, that's how I can speak about it with confidence. I'll tell you how it happened. I was in the gym, we were doing, my training partner and I were doing very heavy back squats, 170 kilos. You use pounds where you come from, don't you? So, <laughs> one, so, so 170 kilos, it's heavy. It's heavy. Um, and we were doing um, real half squats, that is below parallel. We call them half squats because I'm, I've got an Olympic lifting background. It's not a full squat in our book. Full squat is, you know, balls to the floor and then up again with a, with a pretty much vertical trunk. Yep. And, you know, I've done plenty of those as well. But what we were trying to do, we were following a different protocol then. We were doing 
would come into a dead stop in the just below parallel position and then launching ourselves out of it. It's the typical sort of thing that you do in a, in a cycle where you're trying to get stronger. You know, we've all got lots of different ways of, of stepping over, the, you know, some barrier that we've hit, right? Well, so what happened is that my training partner was standing behind me, but he was a bit asleep at the wheel. And what happened, I just couldn't get out of the bottom position. And instead of lifting my chest and shifting the hips forward and, you know, driving out, I actually went forward like this and that whole weight came on my lower back. Anyway, my training partner caught me then and I stood back up, wrapped the bar and walked around and I said to him, oh, man, that, that is going to be sore, I can tell you. Anyway, that, nothing actually happened as a result of that. It was very interesting. But two weeks later, and I, I happened to be, in the irony is not lost on me, I can assure you, I happened to be rewriting, I think it was the third edition of Overcome Neck and Back Pain, and I started to feel, I was sitting at the desk, and I don't use sitting desks anymore, I know you and I talked about this once before, um, I was at my desk and I felt this electric tingling down the side of my leg and I thought, oh, shit, this, this is not good. Two weeks later, anyway, within the next six months, that little bit of tingling became a pain. I couldn't sit in a car. I couldn't, I couldn't drive for any more than about 20 or 25 minutes before I had to get out of the car, shake the leg, walk around, squat down, do whatever, whatever. And as soon as I got out of the car, normally it felt a bit better immediately. So the position of being in a car itself is a problem for that part of the body, and we can perhaps talk a bit more about that later. Yep. Um, but the thing is, I went to see, I mean, I'm, I'm a, a specialist in this area, and I went to see all of my friends, all of my practitioner friends, and not one of them had any solutions for me because the straight leg raising test, and you know what that is, you lie on your back and and someone elevates your leg to see whether or not the sciatic nerve is impinged or not. Um, my straight leg raising test, I could get my leg almost back over onto the floor behind, so clearly there was no impingement happening at the hip joint. But Sean, the pain was was just unrelenting. It was incredible. Anyway, um, I went to see a friend of mine who was, who's not just a doctor of Western medicine, he's also an acupuncturist, a very good one, um, Jacob Fu, his name is Chinese guy. And he said, look, I think this is in your area. He said, I seem to recall there's a muscle on the hip that can impinge um, the sciatic nerve. And I'm, I'm thinking, well, I've been a researcher in low back pain at this point at a postgraduate level at university, fully funded PhD research and all the rest of it. I'd never heard of piriform syndrome, never heard of it once. Anyway, cut a long story short, we, we, got, we got the amazing Travell and Simons on myofascial pain and dysfunction, the trigger point manual, off his shelf, and lo and behold, all the pathology that, that we now know as piriformis syndrome is described beautifully, and there are 172 or 175 references in that one chapter to piriformis syndrome. And I had been reading, 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 I had read everything by that point that I could in the three or four libraries that we have on campus, and they were medical libraries too, one of them, and I had never seen a reference to piriformis syndrome. <clears throat> so I'm not at all critical of my colleagues here. The field of research is so vast, it's almost beyond one person's capacity to be on top of it all. So I went to class one night and I said to my partner, I said, if I don't find some solution to this problem, I'm stopping teaching stretching exercises because it's a joke. I can hardly move. I'm in pain all the time. Anyway, we got down on the floor and for some reason I was able to get into a position that I felt straight away had something to do with the problem. And so we spent that advanced class, this is how it used to work at the university, we spent that advanced class basically workshopping that area of the body. By the time we'd finished we had four, four good exercises and one we had already had but we modified it in a way that produced a stronger effect. 
um, and the advanced piriformis exercise, as we call it now, which is a freebie on YouTube, by the way. All these exercises are on YouTube. That advanced piriformis exercise has helped more people get over that problem than any other in intervention protocol that we know of. It, it's wonderful, and you don't require any equipment for it except maybe something to lift up your hip, you know, a bolster or something, or a cushion. That cushion behind you would do the job. Will you, will you just describe that exercise briefly? I'm sure everyone listening will be able to log on to YouTube, but what is the exercise? I mean, the quickest way to describe it, let's think. Let's, okay, you've got a bolster. Um, and a bolster, yoga bolster, they're normally about, what, uh, nearly three feet long. They're about this round. You want something that's decently thick, uh, at least eight or ten inches thick. So when you say bolster, you mean like a folded-over mat, right? Yeah. In fact, the, in fact, a, a doubly folded blanket would do, or that the base cushion, the cushion on that couch that you're sitting on would probably do, as long as it's about this thick. And basically, the reason you want to put something underneath your hip before you do the exercise is it tips the body towards the leg or the foot that you're going to be bending towards and what that means is that gravity helps you achieve the exercise. If you try and do it on the ground, you have to have super loose hip flexors to get into the position. So basically, you sit on the bolster, you have your thigh, the front thigh in line with the bolster and then the leg open at 90 degrees, the knee open I should say at 90 degrees. It looks like the pigeon pose but opening up the Opening up the front knee to 90 degrees puts the hip in strong external rotation, and that's what exposes piriformis to the stretch. Just as a side note here, I don't want to get too technical, but people have looked at that exercise and have said, uh, look, with my understanding of anatomy, they can't be stretching piriformis because you have to externally rotate the hip in order to get into the position. So how can it be a stretch for it? Um, piriformis, because piriformis, of course, is an external rotator. But what happens then is once you've actually externally rotated the hip and you've leant forward over the knee and you've reached the other leg out behind you, so think about you sort of the, the, hip, the thighs themselves are in a kind of modified front split position, then what you do is you turn towards the mid-shin line, so some point that's halfway between the knee and the foot, and keeping your back straight and your chest lifted, you go forward, and it's the movement of the sacrum which stretches fibers of piriformis that are not touched by any of the other piriformis exercises, and that is the key. So that's so I would describe this exercise as a like as an elevated pigeon pose. It, but it, the crucial difference is there are two, is that by opening out the knee to ninety degrees, because the pigeon pose is done with the knee folded, there is absolutely zero stretch in piriformis when the knee is folded because it's not externally rotated. Mm -hmm. When you lean forward over your folded knee, the front thigh, and the pigeon pose, you're stretching gluteus maximus. It's a very good stretch for gluteus maximus. Then you open out the knee, and instead of going forward over the knee, you orient the body, we recommend halfway, first up, and hence the term mid-shin line. Keep the back absolutely straight, and move forward over that mid-shin line, and the only part that should move forward is actually the hips and the, and, the, and the pelvis. What most people do when they do that pose, and you know, we see pigeon pose also being done badly everywhere, is they'll bend their back instead and put their face on their foot and think that they're doing a pose properly. No, the, pel the pelvis has to move. <laughs> well, we all want to get that nose to the ground, kid. Accomplish all junkies. And, you know, and you know, Sean, it's really, that's a really interesting point, isn't it? Because everyone, we, we want to be, most people want to be flexible. And so what they do is, and we say this in class all the time, they will cheat like buggery in order to look flexible. But if you actually want to be flexible, you have to set up the exercise so it's maximally difficult, not minimally difficult. 
and you have to deal with the restrictions that are actually there. Once you have dealt with those, and it takes time, then the movement becomes effortless. You're not working against yourself. And so, again, it's counterintuitive, for a beginner at least anyway, putting your face on your foot in that exercise will not stretch piriformis as if all that you're doing is doing your back muscles. If, on the other hand, you're very strict with yourself and you move the, the, by the trunk and the pelvis together, then all you'll be stretching would be piriformis. The, the, the difference in sensation is, is, is it's, well, completely different. And it's much, uh, how should I say, piriformis, we, we're talking about this part of the body only in muscle and skeleton terms. That's, all, that's the only frameworks that we've invoked so far to talk about this pose. But the fascial dimension is profoundly important in piriformis syndrome, and I'll just go on to explain why. Gastrocnemius, the outer calf muscle, or the surface calf muscle, itself has the capacity to trap part of the sciatic nerves. If you look up gastrocnemius and tibial plateau, there's an attachment point for the outer, the outer part of the then bifurcated sciatic nerve, which goes down through that little through a little loop of ligament on the tibial plateau and then down in under between gastrocnemius and soleus. If there's any adhesions in the outer sheath of the sciatic nerve and that loop and or, and or gastrocnemius itself, then when the person bends forward, instead of the sciatic nerve lengthening, and you know, we should, we should also mention that in order to do any kind of a forward bend, the segmental nerves have to be withdrawn from the intervertebral foramina so the segmental nerves of the other extension of the spinal cord and the spinal cord then runs down the leg we call it the sciatic nerve and it ends in the toes in order for anyone to bend forward let's say it's just this kind of bending forward level any, any any kind of bending forward capacity the segmental nerve has to be withdrawn from the intervertebral foramen at 12 to 15 millimeters at that point not 1.2 millimeters but 12 to 15 and if that movement can't happen, and that's what disc impingement is, disc impingement presses or holds that part of the segmental nerve in position, and when you try and bend forward, the nerve can't move, and so it's stretched. And if a nerve is stretched, all it does is signal pain somewhere downstream of where the impingement is. Well, that impingement can happen in piriformis in the hip, and about half the population, somewhere between, well, we'll get on to the figures later, but around half the population has one form of piriformis syndrome or another, um, and another significant fraction of the population has entrapment of the sciatic nerve in the calf muscle itself. Those two things, those two things are the false positives I was talking about before. You could have pathology. When you, when you have these symptoms, you can have pathology and you go off and have an MRI and let's say pathology is found. But in fact, those other two causes are the cause of the problem and the pathology is actually benign. The technical term is benign and concomitant. It exists together with... The, with the rest of the thing, but it's not actually active causally. That's so, actually far yeah. the more common. There's great fashion stretches that I've been working with recently. One's kind of a, a variation of the shin box. You start in, um, you start by shin box. You know shin box, right? You're moving your leg, alternating legs side to side, and then you actually wrap the legs one over the other, and then draw the knee to the ground. That works to uh, stretch out the, the posterior hip capsule. That's really nice. And then there's the the leg elevated on like a table, table surface, one leg's up, and then you're reaching um, to the lateral border, or you pass the lateral border of the leg to stretch the entire um, posterior. That, and that would also be a very strong outer hamstring stretch, wouldn't it? Correct, correct. Well, 
Well, the thing is, those that last one that you described, especially when the knee is straight, maximally uh, tightens the sciatic nerve at the piriformis point and also in the calf muscle. Maximum. Mm-hmm. And so what we do, supposing we put someone in that position and they say, oh, shit, I feel that in my hip, or I feel it in the calf muscle. So how many times have you seen people bend forward? Like standing forward bends the perfect example. Where do you feel that calf muscle? Yeah. And what we find is if we do a strong gastroc stretch, or a strong piriformis stretch and then repeat the same exercise, the sensation in that part of the body can be completely different. If it is, you've just found the cause of that restriction. And so in, in, our, in our work, this is our work in a nutshell, every exercise for us is diagnosis or, and potential treatment. Anyone that has a strong reaction to any of the positions we put the body in, and we have... I'm shooting this program now called Overcome Back Pain, and we have, I think, 12 or 13 exercises, something like that. Now, four of them are piriformis exercises, as a matter of fact. That's how important this problem is. And look, this on a side, I'm making a side comment on a side comment. Um, the anatomy of piriformis, when we look at it in a textbook, it looks like a, a simple pennate, a fan-shaped muscle, right? And it, it has a wide attachment at the sacral end and it has a, a narrow attachment at the greater trochanter end. That's the standard drawing of piriformis. It's just simply not accurate. I had a research assistant for the third edition of Overcome Neck and Back Pain and she attended um, dissections of 45 half pelvises at Sydney University and she said that in one case that she saw, piriformis was actually two muscles that, in fact, if we look at it from the end on, the two muscles had actually overlapped each other like this, and the sciatic nerve literally went over the top of this one and under the bottom of this one before it went out to pelvis. I mean, nothing, nothing like the, what the anatomy textbooks tell us. So, and so let me now refine the proportion of people who, on the latest research, um, have piriformis syndrome. Travell and Simons adduce the figures of 10 or 20% of the population had the sciatic nerve actually going through piriformis rather than above it or below. But the, the references in my book, um, Overcome Neck and Back Pain, talk about a Japanese study which looked at 250 pelvis, half pelvises, and they said in addition to the broad category where piriformis actually is pierced by both or one trunk or both trunks of the sciatic nerve, uh, they found another eight subclasses where one or more nerves branched off from either of those trunks actually inside the pelvis and only the branched off nerve came through piriformis. And they said when you put those figures together, that is to say the, the eight subclasses plus the whole of the trunk of the sciatic nerve um, going through piriformis or one branch of it, usually the, uh, the perineal branch, I think, going through it and the sacral branch going underneath it, they said when you put all those figures together, you can say that about half the population has one or more nerves, sciatic parts of the sciatic nerve, passing through piriformis. And in modern, in chiropractic these days, they claim that 60% of the sciatica is actually caused by piriformis, not by the longer spine. Mm-hmm. Now, our, our figures in the clinic don't support that, but definitely 45 to 50%. And there's another dimension too which must be mentioned, and that is that our mind... And our, and our medical system too automatically looks for a single cause and the reason is we can make treatment more efficient if we actually find out what that cause is the problem with back pain is every article that you've ever read on back pain starts out with a, a, a fancy sounding sentence like this um, low back pain has a multifactorial etiology you've read that 
100 times. What that means is there are multiple causes existing in the system. And so my PhD research was actually about, well, if there are multiple causes existing in the system, what are the relationships between these causes? Surely that's an important question to ask. And no one, until, the, until I did my work, no one had actually asked that question, at least not publicly. I'd never published on it. And here's the thing, Sean. Um, even if pathology is active in the system, what can happen is piriformis syndrome can be active in the system at the same time. If you overcome the piriformis syndrome dimension of the problem, the pathology will be less active less often, or it can be. I mean, what we say is that unless your uh, sciatica or the neurological deficits are unrelenting, that is to say they keep you awake at night, they never go away, you don't have any good days, then you must, it's prudent to reserve any kind of intervention that might lead to surgery because all the statistics for low back pain are the same all around the world and they run something like this and one of these studies, a British study, looked at 50,000 people and followed them for five years and it's a massive, the biggest study that's ever been done. Anyway, the stats for low back pain go something like this. If we have a thousand people come down with low back pain today, half of them will be well within a week completely independent, completely independent of treatment or no treatment. There is no difference. And at the end of two weeks, 60%, three weeks, 75%, four weeks, 85%, <clears throat> two months, there'll be a tiny, tiny group of people, about 2%, that actually have ongoing neurological deficits. And so we say, look, stay moving and try and ride out those first couple of months, worst case scenario, and see what happens, see what's left. And the vast majority of people just get better by themselves. It's incredible. This is, I mean, this is actually a really good, really good point to make. And really, the crux of you and I having this this conversation is that you know, I think I have three current clients with um, occasional acute back pain, and yep. you know, the prescription is just to keep them moving and you know, work on foundational strength, essentially. Yep. Um, simplified. But you know, the client that we're going to speak more about has does have chronic back pain. Not it's not something that's come and go. It's something that's persistent. So she yes. is in that two percent of population. potentially. Say again. Potential. Potentially. 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 Well, I think she would describe herself as so. No, no. Let me let me explain. When I said potentially, I have no doubt she's in the two percent from an unrelenting pain perspective. But we can't make the jump from that to well, it has to be pathology. The core of my work um, was a, a set of discussions that I gave at university, and this, is, and this is what my PhD thesis was about, and that is I call them the hidden causes of low back pain. And I say hidden, I'll tell you an amazing story. This is, this is a true story. I was invited to give a paper at the National Centre for Epidemiology and Population Health, and the reason I was invited was a very famous back surgeon from the US was present. I mean, academics and surgeons and other other people, they do the sabbatical thing where they'll take off for six months or three months or whatever, and they'll head around and, and be entertained and, and be able to do research and or have discussions with people in their same field all around the world. This is absolutely standard practice in academia. But Professor Douglas was the guy who invited me to present this paper on hidden causes, he said, because I think this guy will find this extremely interesting. Now listen to this because this was gobsmacking for me and and it changed my research direction forever. 
I gave this paper and I talked about piriformis syndrome and I talked about the role of the hip flexors and I talked about quadratus lumborum and the other muscles that we have found uh, the, where, the, where the pain of back pain is actually experienced. And at the end of this paper, I asked for questions, which is the standard way of doing these things. And this guy stood up and he said, look, I, I really loved your paper. But he said, and these are the words, these are the words that just rang in, in my, inside me for days. He said, you know, there's no such thing as muscular tension. And I, I mean, I just stopped. I said, what do you mean? I said, you know, when I say muscular tension, let's say we're talking about brachioradialis here. I'm, I'm talking about when you palpate it, you can actually feel that this part here is tighter than the surrounding tissues. Blah, blah. He said, yes, of course, I know that. And these are the key words. He said, but muscular tension does no causal work in the Western medical model. Now, that was profound for me, Sean, just profound, because I realized that I had uncovered, I mean, my whole talk was about where muscular tension actually creates problems in the body. And I realized, I went back on a check. He said, check, you check Medline, Ausline, all the other um, online databases that were coming online then. And he said, see if you can find a single article in any of the standard medical journals or even specialist medical journals that has muscular tension in the title. I couldn't find one. The closest one I came was um, a potential relationship between muscular tension and some kinds of migraine. That was all. That was the only one that I found. But the fact is, at least this is on my account, the fact is for most people, the cause of their daily aches and pains, and we can talk about shoulder pain, knee pain, neck pain, and low back pain in particular, is, is tension in particular muscle groups that have different causal mechanisms in relation to this whole problem, and this is the next bit that's important, that the owner of those muscles cannot voluntarily relax the tension from. Lots of people have felt my aging body and were amazed at how soft the whole thing is all the time. And they say, how do you do that? And there's lots of different reasons why my body is very soft, but it wasn't. When I was your age, my body was like a rock. It looked very buff. But it was hell to live in. I'm not saying that's you. I'm sure your body's very good to live. Mine, <laughs> mine was not. <laughs> um, anyway, so that, that's a side a side note. But no, that's a, that's a that's a very well said note. And I think it's funny because I was I was showing my client a picture of you, and I said, you know, just look at his face. Doesn't that look like a like the most like calm, most well intentioned face you've ever seen? She said, yes, um, because there is so much relaxation in your face. It's taken a long time, my friend. If you'd seen my face when I was 30, uh, when I was an elite athlete, um, it looked nothing like that. Nothing. In fact, if you look at the face of every distance runner that you ever see when they're out running, they look... (laughs) I know this is going to get a lot of shit, but do they look happy and relaxed? No. No, they they look intense. You know, look, I was a runner myself, so I do know what that is like. Um, ha- having said that, if I were to have my running career over again, I would just do it so differently. So differently. Anyway, so, look, getting back to the main, the main thread and talking now about, about your particular patient who has this ongoing back problem, in order of likely significance, and I have to just make a little comment on statistics here, because most people who use statistical analyses have forgotten 
the fundamental first point about statistics, which is usually raised in week one of any statistics course and usually forgotten by week four, and that is a correlation is not cause. That's the first thing. And the second thing is that when a group is being distinguished, as in this half, I, I just said a while ago that, you know, 40 or 50% of the population are likely to have, and then I went on to describe what I was talking about, um, you don't know whether the next person who walks into your studio is in that group or not in that group. You don't know. The analysis of statistics, to say that it's, it's likely, as you know, maybe there's a 50% chance of the next person who comes into my studio or my clinic will have piriformis syndrome. That tells you nothing about that individual. That's the point. Statistics is only an analysis of tendencies that can be viewed at a group level. It doesn't tell you anything about individuals, necessarily. What we have found to be, with that caveat in mind, what we have found to be the most common hidden causes of low back pain, recurring low back pain, are, in order of frequency, one leg shorter than the other, an anatomical short leg. Because if someone has one leg shorter than the other, all sorts of muscular consequences result, including, if you look at the spine from behind, of someone who has one leg shorter than the other, one hip will be lower than the other, and the spine will have this shape, lateral curves. Cervical, you can't see it. The thoracic one, you might be able to see, and a lumbar one, you definitely can see. If that person has done loaded weight-bearing exercise, and that can be running, it can be weight training, uh, Olympic lifting, anything that actually axially loads the skeleton, if someone has one leg shorter than the other, then the following muscular phenomena are observable usually. The calf muscle will be bigger on one side than the other. If you measure the girth of the thigh above the knee and below the hip, you'll find that the whole volume of the thigh is greater on the short leg side. You might, if they're wearing tights or leotards, you might be able to see that the glute is larger on one side than the other. That's one um, set of indicators. Another set of indicators is when you look at erector spiny in someone who's done vertical load-bearing exercise, the muscle that's on the outer part of the curve that's induced by the leg length difference, definitely better developed, usually visually noticeable, especially in men with low body fat. And when you palpate that erector spiny, it feels completely different to the other muscle, the partner muscle on the other side. One is soft, one is hard. If that's the case, and unless you think that you know, this is all just a fluke correlation. You've actually uncovered the cause of the discomfort. Okay, so that's one thing, leg length difference, and I've written about this extensively. The next most common cause of recurring low back pain is one or both hip flexors are excessively tight. Now, again, I won't go into this in any great detail. We have the, the world's best hip flexor stretches available free on the YouTube channel. Um, but suffice to say that if rectus femoris in particular, that's the culprit because of the length of its lever arm, if you think about where rectus femoris joins onto the front of the pelvis, A-double-I-S, then that's about two inches anterior of the hip joint itself. If rectus femoris is tight, then anterior pelvic tilt will be the result. And if you have anterior pelvic tilt, then you can guarantee that psoas will be excessively tight as well. Now, I, don't, I can't remember what kind of a therapist you are, but if you have good hands, when someone's lying down and their knees are bent 90 degrees and they relax, you can actually go through the abdominal wall with your fingers and you can palpate psoas. 
And, and I, I've done this hundreds of times because I'm, I'm a practitioner, as you know, hands-on practitioner, I mean, as well. Yeah. And and for many people, when you palpate psoas, it's, firstly, it's a very ugly sensation for a lot of people, and a lot of people will tell you, that's part of my problem. And yet it shouldn't be. I mean, my psoas are quite soft now, but they weren't. Yeah. We had, in fact, it took two years of sieging rectus femoris before rectus femoris was loose enough to allow psoas to be stretched. And I'll, I'm going to make a claim here. We've never done a workshop together, but I would guarantee that no matter how flexible um, most of your students or you are, it's very unlikely that you've actually fully stretched or even deeply stretched psoas before. And the reason is rectus femoris is so tight in the majority of the population because we spend our lives sitting down these days and we regard our lives as stressful or tiring. Both of those things are crucial determinants of the you know, the resting length of that muscle, that when we go to put that leg in extension, we find that there's very little extension at all. Most people don't have any extension at the hip joint if you flatten the lumbar curve. Most people, the the, the, the 10% of extension that you see in the physiotherapy books that is normal, quote-unquote, um, hip extension is not real. It's it, because the, the, the pelvis is anteriorly tilted to start with, and that's the actual 10% you're looking at. If you flatten the lumbar spine, which our hip flexor exercise does, then you find that most people actually cannot get the back leg in line with the straight spine, let alone extend it. And when you can extend it, then then stretching soles can become possible because once you're in extension, you then can lift the chest and shoulders away from the floor in the position. It's, a, it's done in the lunge position with both hands on the floor. And basically, when you get low enough and you can put the front of your back leg on the ground, then when you lift chest and shoulders off the ground, that's a pure sort of stretch. It's extremely powerful. I've, I've done it. It hurts good. <laughs> yes, yeah, so anyway, so that's the second most common cause. Tight hip flexors, and I'll just, just briefly talk about this. When the hip flexors are stretched in someone in whom hip flexors are a causal mechanism in low back pain, the first thing they'll tell you when they get off the floor is they'll walk around and they'll just have this kind of bemused look on their face. I say, that's just incredible. That that just doesn't hurt anymore. Now, we've not stretched the back. We've not stretched anything that, that is conventionally thought of as being causes of low back pain when you stretch the hip flexors. But what happens is the tension in the muscles, and, and uh, this is a new thought, so let me just develop this for a second. Most of the tension in erector spinae and the paravertebrals, the muscles which do the same job in the thoracic spine, is necessary because the hip flexors are tilting the pelvis anteriorly. That's to say, with an anterior pelvic tilt, you need some muscular activity to bring the shoulders and the head over the balance point. When you stretch the hip flexors, and I've seen this happen hundreds of times on workshops, not once or twice, the first thing that people will say when they get up off the ground is they'll say, oh, that's amazing. This feels softer now. Or they'll say, I came in here with neck pain this morning, but that's gone. Or they'll say, I'm really, really tight between the shoulder blades normally. But they'll say, this feels different now. That tension in those muscle groups that I've just described, is absolutely necessary. It has to be there in the body if your hip flexors are excessively tight. And this is the thing. The body is immensely smart, much smarter than we are. As, as soon as you stretch the hip flexors effectively, the tension just goes down by itself, even though it's a habit in the body, because it's no longer needed. 
And that's just the way, that's just the way in. Once the person feels that, and listen, I can give you, I'll just give a thought experiment which will show you exactly what I'm talking about. If anyone who's listening stands up and presses the knee straight, both knees straight, and then tries to tuck their tail, right, to posteriorly tilt the pelvis, most people can't move the pelvis at all. But when you bend the knees, even just a tiny bit like I've done now, all of a sudden you can tuck your tail. Are you, so you're saying a straight-legged um, tail tuck versus a bend leg tail tuck? Yes, that's it. So as soon as you bend the knees, even though you only bend the knees a few degrees, rectus femoris is slackened. Right. It's the only muscle that's slackened. Mm-hmm. So that, that's, that's one little test. I'll give you a second test. If I put my hands, can you see that, hands across the lower back like this? Now, for most people, when they palpate these muscles in the normal standing position, these muscles are like a rock. Watch, if you bend your knees slightly and tuck your tail slightly, those muscles go completely soft. The point is this. Rectus femoris is inducing that tension into the spine because it's pulling the pelvis into an anterior tilt and these other muscles have to tighten in order for you to be able to balance over your feet. Mm-hmm. In a way, I, I feel I feel that our practitioners have failed us by not by everyone not knowing this stuff. This is the first I've heard of this one. I love this. Well, I mean, just think about it. I mean, does it sound like a reasonable? I mean, you can test it yourself once we're done. Mm-hmm. I'll uh, I'll describe it to you and I'll, I'll, uh, in and I'll send it to you by email if you want. But basically, by bending your knees very very slightly and tucking your tail. The tension in, in all of your back muscles will go down. You, you, can t- you can palpate it. It will be completely, completely different. For some people, the difference is only small, but it's still tangible. It's still perceptible. Other people, the muscles just go gushy and soft. That's what you want. You want a body, in my view, like a cat. You want those muscles to be so soft that the body can be put into any position that you want. You should be able to sleep in any position. I mean... The amount of bullshit that we read about how the pillow has to be like this and mattress has to be like that, and I can sleep on a, I can sleep on a wooden floor, no problem. Kid, I sleep on the floor every night. I'm with you, man. There, there you go. Right? It's possible. I'm it's just right. saying it's comfortable. It is. Well, it's comfortable for you. Most of your students it will not be comfortable because they can't relax their body onto the floor. Right. Oh, here's, here's another quick test. You want to know whether your hip flexors are loose, loose enough mm-hmm. or not? If you lie on the floor, if your legs on the floor, is your lower back touching the floor? And I guarantee you 99.9% of the population, the lower back is being pulled off the floor by psoas and, and, uh, and rectus femoris. When I lie on the floor, my back is on the floor. Crazy thing. No shit. Well, wow. Look, see, I would, I would self-describe as, as flexible, but I can tell you that my lower back is not on the floor either. Well, Sean, there's a there's a thread on my forum which we regard as the most important thread there. Um, and if if anyone goes to the forums and reads the start here bit, I'll say this is the most important thread on the forums, and it's the relationship between um, range of movement or flexibility and tension in the body. Because Olivia, my partner, wrote she started the thread. It's just a brilliant thread. She said, "Look, I, what I don't understand is this. She don't. I don't understand why." She said, my flexibility is better than kids in every range of movement, and it is. I mean, she's an ex-gymnast, and she's been working really hard on her flexibility. She has perfect straddle, pancake, perfect size, perfect, you know, just perfect. But her body is tight all the time. 
my body is completely soft most of the time. And this has been driving her mad. I bet. I bet. But, but and no one ever talks about this. Becoming flexible in and of itself will not make your body soft. Now, why do we want to have a soft body? Well, let me just give you a thought experiment for a moment. Okay, your, your cat is sunning itself in the backyard, right? And somebody leaves the back gate open and the neighbor's dog comes in, big aggressive pit bull, let's say, runs over to the cat. Does the cat raise one claw and say, excuse me, I have to stretch my hamstrings? No. The cat goes from being completely asleep to full power, either running away or attacking, with no negative consequences. Warming up? Warming up is bullshit. If you need to warm up, your body is not in what I would consider optimal condition. And not talking about the state of your body fat or how big your muscles are or any of those kinds of things. I'm talking about relaxed readiness. That's what we want. And cats exemplify this. Another thought experiment. You, you, you pick up a cat, I'm sure, and you've held it in the palm of your hand. They're so soft that one end hangs down here. But if you've ever tried to make a cat do anything it doesn't want to do, you suddenly find out how quickly they can react and how powerful they are. One more idea. Cats and dogs of the same size, so we're talking about small cat, big cats, bigger cats, small, medium and large sized dogs, if they're the same mass approximately, cats of any size are about 70% more powerful than dogs. Now, surely that's an interesting question. Why is that? They have exactly the same skeleton. If, if, if you're an ethologist, say, and you've got these two skeletons side by side, they have the same number of bones, the same arrangement of bones, the same length of forearm to upper arm, and all those kinds of things, right? Very, very similar. And yet, cats can jump higher, run faster, and all the rest of it, right, than dogs can. What is the one, the big difference, though, between cats and dogs? I mean, leaving aside ear shape and teeth are a bit different, and the claw structure is different because cats have retractable claws, right? There's those small scale differences. The big difference between cats and dogs. Well, I feel like you're going to say how they hold tension or spinal length. No, spinal or, length is the same. And the number of vertebrae is the same. Really? Really it is? Okay. And, and, and Sean, one more thing. This is beautiful. Cats and dogs have the same stretching routine. But oh, okay. here's a big difference. Cats, this is how, how it works. What, a cat will get up. The first thing they do is they hunch over like this, right? And they stretch their arms out and, and then do the, the yeah. what we call the dog pose, right? Yeah. And then they'll, as first step, they take, they reach one leg out behind them, that's the hip flexor stretch, and then the next step, the hip flexor on the other side to give it a stretch out, and then they off they trot. Dogs and cats have the same stretching routine. But the big difference between cats and dogs, and this turns out to make all the difference in the world, cats lick every square inch of their own body every day. Dogs do not. Interesting. Interesting. And so, just think about this for a moment. They have the most elaborate yoga routine on the planet, man, and they don't use their hands. They don't use their arms and hands to get into position. They use their core. They can lick every part of their own body except this part up here, and they lick the back of their and do this instead but just just think about this just try right now to lick your own right hip right but we have the same number of vertebrae we are so rigid in comparison Mm -hmm. 
to these animals. And cats are just that much more flexible. The softness that cats have is because the muscle tonus in their bodies is right down. Now, here's another, here's another thought experiment. Let's go back to where the dog came in the back gate and attacked the cat. One minute after that fight is over, the cat is licking itself and or sunning itself or asleep. An hour later, the dog is still worked up about the fight. Now, which animal do we resemble more? I think we can all easily answer that. We're, we're, we're dog-like, man. Of course, yeah. And there's another, there's another big dimension here. This is, this is a perfect place to introduce this too. What is the other big difference between cats and dogs? Dogs have their whole locus of attention on you. You walk into a room where there's a dog, and the first thing the dog does is position itself to see what you're thinking about it. Am I a good dog today, or am I a bad dog today? The fact that I tore up all those rolls of toilet paper, are you angry at me, or are you pleased with me? Right? That's a dog. Mm -hmm. What does a cat do? They ignore you. Nothing. They don't even care about you. You, you may get an ear twitch, if you're lucky. And again, I think we, we really need to be more cat-like than dog-like in this respect as well. Those two things, what's going on inside your mind, is what generates tension in the body. In fact, let the, here's, here's another one to crack you up. If you anaesthetize someone, even if they're really stiff, they'll have perfect flexibility while they're under the anaesthetic. Because the brain's been disconnected from the body and there's no muscular tension. Robert Schleich, my friend Robert Schleich, they actually ran this experiment. You know Robert Schleich, the, the role for fascial researcher, okay. Tom, Tom Meyer's colleague. Um, and this actually, this raises a very important point because two things. One is that they notice this, that there's no muscular tension when the brain is disconnected from the body, of course. All the muscles are completely pliable. They're soft. They can be lengthened up to a point. And so he said that you can move that body around on the operating table um, and there's just no resistance to it being moved. Now, another surgeon friend of mine told me about this old guy that they had on the operating table. This probably is the best story to start with. This guy came in and he had this amazing kyphosis. He was bent over like a prawn, or you say shrimps, I think, where you come from, or maybe so, I can't remember. Anyway, he had this shrimp-like shape. And they laid him on the operating table, and his head was over a foot off the operating table. He could not lie back on the table. Mm -hmm. And they hit him with the anaesthetic, and his body literally went from like this to... It took about four or five minutes, and it just unwound on the table like this. Okay, that's interesting enough. What's much more interesting is when the anaesthetic wore off, he went back to his old shape. Michael, he said, it was just amazing to see. He said he'd never seen anything like it before. I mean, he was paying attention to that for some particular reason. Yeah. But here's the thing. Your postural signature... The way you hold your head on your shoulders, the way the shoulders sit on the rib cage, your anterior or not um, lumbar curve, the way you present yourself when you're looking at someone else, the way everything about you is your postural signature and it's all tension or lack thereof. It is only tension which modulates this postural signature. And so we can tell straight away when we look at our friends, they're relaxed today, or they're worked out about something today, right? They, 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 the, the person doesn't change, but it's completely obvious what's actually happening inside them. That's what I'm talking about. We are much more dog-like than cat-like. We care too much about what other people think of us. 
thing. And secondly, we are not doing enough of this low level moving the body through full range of movement. Have you ever watched a baby um, in the first two years of their life, the positions they put their bodies into? It's, it's extraordinary. I tell you, every pose in yoga is done spontaneously by a baby. Well, not everyone, not those bound poses, not the complicated ones that have arms wrapped around knees and you know, other things. But all the basic positions are explored by children all the time when they're very young. If that were continued, we would be more cat-like than dog-like. Yeah, and you know, I noticed this in teaching. I do a lot of gymnastics coaching. It's, you know, mm. I do all ages, but kids are interesting because the youngest I work with is four, mm. and you know, he actually will stretch independently. Basically, to get himself prepared for some locomotion that we do, some very basic locomotion, right? Um, and he just needs about ten seconds of stretch across a variety of positions, and it really requires very little on my part, aside from placing out a mat for him to you know, explore you know, his body in you know several positions. Can I just interrupt you and just just say one, make one comment on that? Sure. What is beautiful about that story? I mean, I've had similar experiences in my own body is, and that's what, we, what what I mean by not needing to warm up if your body is in the kind of state that, you know, we're suggesting people try to get closer to, is that when you do, you know, this kind of thing, you hunch over, you twist or you whatever, on the floor, this is what this boy would be doing, legs apart, chest on the ground, rolled around, blah, blah. Yeah. This is the key thing to understand, and I know you understand this, but so many people looking at that do not understand this. That is not a stretch for that kid. It is only the re-exploring of yesterday's ranges of movement. And this is a critical difference. When people go and watch yogis or good yogis or dancers or gymnasts warming up, they think they're stretching. No, they're not. I mean, they are. If you tried to do, if you tried to do what they were doing, if you're not flexible, yeah, it'd be a stretch for you, all right? That's because people are completely unaware of the limits in range of movement, in all parts of their body, because culturally we do not explore them on a daily basis. If we if we went to Bali or went to Indonesia somewhere, everyone can squat there. Everyone can squat there. If we went to Japan, everyone can sit with their heels sucked underneath their bottom for hours. They just do it. There's nothing special about Japanese grandmother's knees. I've even read papers speculating on It's just bullshit. It's what you do. And so if you think about this from the bigger picture perspective, if you have a life where ranges of movement are explored routinely within that life, we would not be having this conversation. You're right. Um, it's so funny that you brought that up because I was, I was stretching yesterday and a friend, I was, I was just in a full front split and a friend of mine was like, doesn't that hurt? It's just... <laughs> Let's look at this. There's more. There's more. There's more. Um, when you here's my my classic example is this. I say to I say to people, you want to know whether or not your emotional self is related to physical range of movement and tension in your in the muscles of your body, your body, and because I do workshops on this stuff all the time, and I'll say, just imagine you're lowering yourself into side splits. I'll say to the guys in particular, how does that feel? And they recoil. It's shocking. The idea of putting your body into that position, there's an emotional response to that. It's not a, not a conceptual response. 
This is very powerful because, in fact, our emotional self is nothing more than the sum of tensions or lack of tensions in all the surface musculature of the body and the internal organs of the body too. This is what we are. And, and I think, well, for me at least anyway, one of the problems of modern medicine is, is this division between the mind and the body and the specialists who deal with what are called mental problems. A problem, let's say, in my case, quickness to anger. This used to be my big problem. You get angry in a, in, you know, in a few heartbeats or less. Um, when I became aware of that, that physical tension manifesting in a pattern which I recognize as, uh-oh, this is leading to getting angry, when you have that level of awareness, you can actually choose to do something about it. If you don't have that level of awareness, you'll just simply blame the person who's right in front of you as the reason why you're angry. I'll tell you why I'm angry. I'm angry because you did or said X, Y, or Z. That's how quick it is. And how, how quick is it? Milliseconds. Anyway, and so, I mean, this might sound a bit of a roundabout point to make. One of the reasons, or one of the virtues, I should say, of working on your physical self is a much greater awareness of what's actually happening inside your body as it starts to manifest. This is absolute gold, Sean, because no one else can teach you anything about this. You have to find it out for yourself. And what it means is that when you become aware, oh, look, my body's organizing itself to get pissed off again, something it's done 10,000 times before, if you are aware of it in enough time before the process, and it's a long and reflexive process, much practice, very skillful in its enactment, if you become aware, uh-oh, I'm at the beginning of this point here, and we know where it's going, you take a breath, let your tummy relax completely, because you can't be angry without being tense. You can't be angry without this part of your body getting really tight. And, you know, the rest of the body follows in very quick order, as I'm sure you're aware. Um, to me, this is gold. I mean, this, is, this, is, this has a more profound effect on the quality of one's life than you know, anything else yeah. you can do. So I definitely, I, I want to talk a little bit more about the relationship between, like, emotional stress and physical stress. But I think mm. we should also finish off our typical causes of lower back pain. We, we can talk about this other stuff another time. We can come back to that another time because sure. I've got things that I need to do as well. Um, leg length difference. And when I say leg length difference, I want, to, I want to stress something tremendously important. I have a significant leg length difference myself. Um, it's uh, in the order of three-quarters of an inch. My right leg is about three-quarters of an inch shorter than the left, equally divided between femur and tibia. Mm -hmm. Both of my ankles are perfectly aligned because I've been a barefooter for a very long period of time now. Um, and I don't ever wear any shoes, so I don't actually do any compensation anymore for the leg length difference. Sure. I'm strong enough and flexible enough now for that not to be any kind of a problem for me. Notice I didn't say issue. It, let's call it spade a spade, right? Problem. Problem. Gotcha. And the reason is that I became flexible enough and strong enough to support that. But in the beginning, when I first uncovered this in my own body, I found that using a bit of a lift in the heel of my right shoe literally took the strain off the parts that were hurting the most immediately. Mm -hmm. and, when I, and when I walk around, I immediately felt more balanced. And so as a short-term strategy, we strongly recommend using a heel lift, not the whole amount of any difference that you think you've identified, something less than half. And the reason for that is simple. Your body has already adapted to this difference. If you correct the whole of the difference, which is what the podiatrists always do, you're just 
likely to render one of those adaptations maladaptive and you can end up in pain as a result of the correction. If, if I had a dollar for every time someone's had their ankles realigned by orthotics and ended up with knee pain, hip pain or back pain, I could retire. I'm not kidding. We have to look at the whole system. Okay, so that's the first thing, leg length difference. Second, hip flexors. You must loosen your hip flexors. Third, hamstring length is not important in low back pain. Hamstring length is a function of other things happening in the system. Tighter hamstrings, in fact, actually flatten the lumbar curve. It doesn't exaggerate it. And so if you are experiencing pain down the side of your leg or in the leg itself or in the calf muscle or in the foot, piriformis syndrome is a very likely cause. And that's a separate mechanism which um, may or may not coexist with a leg length difference. They're completely independent from one another. Piriformis syndrome is determined at birth. That is the course of the sciatic nerve as it makes its way out the pelvis. That's at um, determinate birth. Leg length difference only develops in your first or second growth spurt as a teenager. In fact, on that note, if there are any mothers and fathers listening, if you have a child with a leg length difference, don't correct it. Because the research, there's only one research done on this in the Netherlands. They found, I think it was 400 kids with identified anatomic leg length difference. They corrected half of them and didn't correct the other half. At the end of the teenage years, it's one of the very first longitudinal studies done, so long-term studies. They found the group, that, and they played quite actively outside all of these children, which our children don't do, that's another problem. Um, they found that the group that did not have the orthotic corrections actually had much closer to even legs at the end of the teenage years than the, than the group that did. Well, that, that's in the literature. You can find this. Just as one research, we say, look, if your child's a leg length difference, unless it's, it's a truly gross one, um, you know, like the sort that we used to see when people suffered from polio, for example, which we don't see anymore, um, where you might be talking about a three or four inch leg length difference. If you're talking about something that's in that um, half to one inch range, the recommendation now is not to correct it, just actively pursue. And this is another very important point. Third core idea, any right-left differences in flexibility in your system, when I say right-left, I'm talking about right-left in a right and left-hand sense, so right hamstring, left hamstring, right quad, left quad, right hip flexor, left hip flexor, left rotation, right rotation. Any left-right differences you find in your system make your best efforts to reduce those to zero because it's the muscular stresses that are caused by the left-right differences that, that they have their origin, let's say, in one muscle being tighter than another. I mean, at a crude level, that's accurate, but what's not made clear in that picture is that we all have a life history. I don't know how old you are, but let's say you're 30. Let's say you're 30. You, 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 have, you have a life history. Your life history has imposed a pattern of flexibility on you. If you're a dancer or a gymnast, you'll be more flexible than the average person, but it's, it's because of what you've done. Now, for the average person who does not have that history and who's not flexible and muscular, um, they have a much more rigid pattern. pattern and a much more limited pattern than you. So what we do is we identify the key functions, hip flexors, um, right-left rotation, right-left lateral flexion, um, there are three or four of them, and we address those. And what we find is that when you reduce those left-right differences, and in everyone with back pain there will be significant big differences, that alone for many people is a cure. Just that. Not going into any of the other causal mechanisms. Right, lift it. And how did, how did I find this out? Well, this is a kind of funny story. It tells against me, so you can have a bit of a laugh. There I was in a difficult position. 
of recommending stretching exercises for people with low back pain, because the first edition of Overcome Neck and Back Pain had already come out. But at the same time, I knew in my advanced group there were people who had chronic low back pain or people who had recurring low back pain, and their flexibility tested off the scale. And I had an over 50s group, and plenty of those people didn't have any problems in terms of back problems. Neck problem, most of them did, but many of them didn't have low back problems. And one day, I happened to teach both the advanced class and the over 50s class on the same day because the person who was going to teach the advanced class didn't turn up for whatever reason. And I suddenly had this insight. I realized that the people in the over 50s group who had no back problems had remarkably symmetrical flexibility, even if they had none of it. We we used to say they've got the flexibility of a house brick. They couldn't touch their toes or any of those things, but there was no significant left-right differences. And everyone in the advanced group that had recurring low back pain had massive left-right differences, even though they were testing off the scale. So suddenly I realized the figures, that comparing yourself with norms is irrelevant. We have to find the in-person comparison, and the only axis that allows an in-person comparison possibility is right and left. So the axis in this set around the skeleton, no relationship between forward and backward bending, only and no relationship, not a strong relationship in rotation either, but a very strong relationship in some of the other things. Hip flexors in particular, quadratus lumborum in particular. Interesting. Very, very. You know, this is actually very specific to the client we're speaking to because her, uh, I think her left QL is significantly tighter than her right QL. Well, look for a leg length difference. That's the first thing to eliminate. Yep. And also we have, and this, I think this one's on YouTube, yeah, we have we have a series, well, the new program that I'm bringing out now has a series of more gentle um, exercises, but we do have, in one of the YouTube clips, we've got a very strong QL stretch. It's probably too strong for someone who's actually in pain. We have a, a chair-based exercise that the book talks about and the new program is actually demonstrating. A chair-based exercise that literally anyone can do um, which will uh, target QL very directly, and they don't have to have loose hamstrings in order to do that. The problem with the floor-based exercises, as you know, is if you want to bend over one leg, you've got to have pretty loose hamstrings to be able to hold this foot with this hand, and that's, that's basically where we're going. But that can be done on a chair by holding the base of the chair with the other hand, leaning on the back of your yeah, leaning on the back of the arm, and then once you've gone as far as you can to the side, then cautiously reaching this arm out so we're using traps to stretch latissimus dorsi because latissimus dorsi if ql is tight you can bet the farm the fibers of latissimus dorsi that that connect to the thoracolumbar fascia will be excruciatingly tight they will never have stretched that area and the the arm off the body stretch that i just roughly demoed then can can on its own alleviate some kinds of low back pain instantly no one ever explores it Speaking most generally now, practitioners, um, massage therapists, chiropractors, osteopaths, physios, they make their money um, from about a dozen muscle groups around the body. Now, there are 660 muscles in the body, I think, right? 220 bones, 660 roughly muscles. If you count the tongue, it's, it's, a, it's the only unpaired muscle in the body. What we find, if I, if I just run through the list, you tell me whether or not this actually deals with all of the problems that you deal with as a practitioner. And, and you know, the question surely to ask is, what what about these other two, uh, 630 or 40 muscles? Why aren't they a problem? So here, here are the list. Suboccipitals, levator scapulae, uh, long head of bicep tendon, 
And if someone has any kind of RSI or repetitive strain injury, then brachialis, brachioradialis will also be involved in that. Uh, scalenes, mm-hmm. my personal favourite. We've got a fabulous scalene script. That's also free on YouTube as well. But Travell and Simon say any random hand, forearm, elbow, shoulder pain, you have to look to the scalenes first because they are very likely a causal mechanism. That's what we found too. And they're very difficult to stretch normally, Sean, because... In, in order to stretch scalenes, you have to, if the conventional approach is you have to do a little rotation like this, and you have to do this movement, and then you have to take the head back, right? That's a scalene stretch. The problem is, if you've got neck problems and your scalenes are tight, then when you put your head into that position, very likely the muscles on this side will just go into spasm. And that's not good. That is not good, no. <laughs> So anyway, we've got a floor version that gets by all of those problems, and also we trap the shoulder by holding the ankle. It's a very simple stretch, but God, it's effective. Anyway, so working down the body, scalenes, um, pec minor, because what are we up to now, five? Quadratus um, lumborum and the lower fibres of latissimus dorsi, six, seven. Piriformis, eight. Hip flexors, nine. Um, gastrocnemius 10, there are some others, but there's, they are the main problem areas of most people's bodies. Now, don't you find that interesting? What is it about those muscles, and I know I've left a couple out, but it doesn't matter, this gets the idea. What is it about those muscles that are unique in the body? I only found this out, I only thought of this recently, by the way. Okay, here's, an, here's another, here, here's a perfect example. You know how women are always worried about the tricep muscle hanging down sure. and being soft. Sure. Well, think about this. If you squeeze your own arm, and you can do this now if you want, is it not the case, if the arm is hanging down, when you squeeze it, all you can feel is the bicep muscle. You can't feel the tricep muscle. You can squeeze the shit out of it, and all you feel is pressure. But when you press into the bicep, what does that feel like? Can you feel the tension? Yeah, I feel a little Look, tension in my tricep too, but that might just be because of the way I'm sitting. Maybe you did, you know, 10,000 um, tricep <laughs> exercises yesterday, and it's not important, but the thing is, you, can you feel that the, the bicep is tighter than the tricep? I do feel the tension of the bicep, yeah. Right, okay, so here's the thing. Here, this is, a, this is a movement, reaching up and scratching the back of your neck is a movement that people do every day. Everyone does that. And as a result, in everyone, even if they're an athlete, the resting muscle tension in triceps is less than biceps. No one takes biceps through a full range of movement. And just feel this. Put your arm up like this, turn it over, don't let it go down, and then take it back behind you on that same angle. Now feel that? Yep. That's biceps. And, and just do this again. Can you feel that's completely different? Mm-hmm. But that's that's the maximum stretch for triceps. We do that every day. No one stretches their bicep every day. Daily life movements stretch and move certain muscles through most of their potential range of movement. The muscles that I describe are only ever taken through a fraction of their potential movement in daily life movements. Now, if you're a gymnast or a dancer and sitting in side splits every day or front full front splits every day, is a movement you use, then those muscles are not going to be a problem for you. But I've, I've worked with plenty of dancers who have the most super fabulous hip flexibility and who have the same tension in their neck that I do or you do or anyone else does because we don't, we're not working on these muscles 
And these are just part of the spine, after all. We're not working on these muscles like we work on our hip muscles or our shoulder muscles. And when you're worried about what someone else is thinking about you, which is, seems to be most people's more or less permanent state these days, which muscles do you use to express that reaction in? It's not your calf muscles, not your quads. If you want to know what someone's thinking, you don't look at their quads, do you? No, you look at these muscles here. You look at the face. You can, you can divine, once you've been on the planet long enough, and I would say for men it's over 40, once you've been on the planet for long enough, you cannot hide what's going on in your mind. You simply can't do it because your face is already that shape. <laughs> and it is what's going on in your mind makes the shape of your face. Uh, here, here's an, another Gedanken, another thought experiment. You, you've, you've probably gone to a funeral and, and seen dead bodies before. Haven't you noticed how relaxed they all look? Okay. And I've heard people say, oh, Grandpa looks so relaxed now. now Grandpa was an angry old bastard who made everyone's life misery. In his normal daily life, when the brain was connected to the body, he looked angry. He had an angry face. Yep. But as soon as he passed on, all that tension goes, the face settles back into its relaxed state. That's the real person right there. Anyway, you get the idea. I do. So this, this state of being, we like to say, not just relaxed. I mean, you can, you can narcotize yourself with, uh, I don't know, Valium or Sundown. Or, and you, you can look like that. Or you can Botox your face as well. That's, that's another option. And it's very popular on these days. But it's bullshit. You're just masking what's actually happening inside. In order to be really relaxed, we need to develop the habit of being relaxed, and that is something that has to be done consciously. Another quick Robert Schleip story. Three rolfers anaesthetized a colleague of theirs. They, they're attached to a medical school. He's the head of the research unit at, at Ulm University in Germany. Very, very lovely guy too, by the way. If you get a chance to work with him, I, I recommend it. Anyway, Robert said to me, um, it's just a fascinating story. He said, we did all our usual range of movement tests for this colleague of theirs, who's also a rolfer, and he had average middle-aged men's flexibility and, and all that sort of thing, and, you know, usual problems that are attendant upon that. Um, and they said, what we did is we, we anesthetized him, and we got three rolfers to work on him and do the whole of the 10 series, of 10 session work that they do, mm -hmm. while he was knocked out on the table. Right. They went to town. And then when the guy regained consciousness and stood up, what do you think the result was? Nothing. Absolutely nothing. No change whatsoever. And, and from that, we, we derive one of our basic rules. Unless the mind is consciously involved in any change, that change didn't happen. That's very inter interesting. I like that. Yeah. So, and so look, this is one, the last thing that I'll say for today. Maybe the last. The thing that we live in is incredibly classic, and I remember Justin was all over this idea when, when I talked about it in my little talk to him. The body's the ultimate adaptation machine. That's what it does. Of all the things that the body is skillful at, it is most skillful at adapting. But for most people, because of what they do, the adaptations are actually not a good thing. But the body has no vested interest in whether or not an adaptation is useful to you, the owner of it. It simply responds to forces, vectors, stresses, whatever, or habits, what you actually do with your body. And your body simply has its own, what we call its developmental trajectory. 
And this is why we see people when they get into their 50s and 60s and 70s um, unable to move because they don't move, they weren't moving in the past. So it's, it's completely unrealistic to expect that somehow something miraculous is going to happen and they're all of a sudden going to be doing Fred Astaire when they're 50. It's just not going to happen. And so, but, but the, the converse of that is it takes a remarkably small amount of restitutive work to maintain or even improve one's range of movement. It's incredibly small. Yeah, to get your chest on the ground with your legs apart is going to take you a couple of years' work if you're a beginner. Two years out of 60? So what? You know? Everyone these days, as you know, is expecting instant results, and we see things on the forums all the time. Like, I've just started stretching this week. Um, how long will it be before I can sit in front splits? Right? If you've, you've read this, or you've been asked this. It's, of course it's nonsense, but that's it, the world we live in, instant gratification, right? Mm-hmm. Well, I can tell people now, if they are interested in becoming flexible, it's not going to be a quick process, but it's an, an inexorable process. And once that process starts, it develops its own momentum, as you know. It actually, unlike any other physical training, stretching becomes easier as you get better at it, not harder. It really does. This is a great... And and isn't that amazing? You don't hear people talking about this. This should be headline news. It's fucking amazing, actually, if you think about it. It's, um, you know, I I sent Justin a text, I think it was last week, and I, I will say that I still get a higher level of soreness from stretching than any other exercise, whether it's deadlifts or squat or any, any heavy bullshit. Stretching is the one that really pushes it for me. And the reason is it's changing the fundamental substance that believes it's you. Sure. <laughs> sure. Isn't that Isn't yeah. That amazing? yeah, yeah, yeah. It's absolutely pushing the threshold of, you know, of comfort and... Yeah, um, I still want to get number four, Kate. We did the first three. Ah, uh, look, mate, I'm senile. I'm becoming senile. I think I can't remember the fourth one. What is it? Leg length difference, hip flexors, right left differences, uh, um, and right left differences, and then um, targeted exercises to stretch the parts of the body where the pain is actually felt, and that's QL and 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 latissimus dorsi. So they're they're the four big ones. There are more. This is this is if you like, it's um we we talk about it as being the way in. Oh, sorry, and piriformis. That's fine. Yeah, piriformis. Piriformis is critical. Um, so, in, so we could divide it up like this. We could say if we could talk about structural asymmetry, which then drives your functional asymmetry, and your function definitely is driven much harder by structure than the other way around, although it's also true that when you improve your function very slowly and at small scales, your structure also changes. For example, when you do get really loose in the hips inside splits, the structure of your joints definitely has changed to allow that to happen. And when people uh, when people reduce curves that are induced by a leg length difference, um, the actual structure of the discs themselves change to follow that, just as the discs... Uh, just a very brief, brief, um, very brief description here. I don't know whether I can show this. If we're looking at the intersection between two vertebrae, so that's the bottom of a top vertebra and this is the the bottom of, of the top of a bottom vertebra, when you have a curve in the spine, the discs are slightly wedge-shaped. You can see this on x-ray. And the nucleus moves slightly laterally and the impingement of the disc itself into the bone, because the, the bone's not static, as you know, it, it changes, there, instead of the, the, the center of this curve being in the middle of the vertebra, it moves more to the inside. And I've seen this on x-ray, honestly, a thousand times. 
But what happens is when you straighten up the spine, and straightening up the spine might be a matter of correcting the leg length difference, it might be a matter of reducing the tension that is, that is actually causing those curves to increase, or whatever it is that you do, the, sh the shape of the discs themselves and the shape of the vertebrae themselves also slowly change over time. So, it, it, so I mean, that's, but it's much slower. Generally speaking, structure, whatever your structure is, that drives function strongly. So that's the first thing. Secondly, there are impingement phenomena in the body. Everyone is a potential scalene impingement or thoracic outlet compression syndrome. You know that, familiar with that. 100% of the population have brachial plexus emerging into the body uh, between anterior and medial scalenes, right? Sure. And if you have a head forward posture like this, then you can guarantee your scalenes will be rigid. Really, really tight, and you're, and also there's more there because the course of brachial plexus means that not only is the head carried forward of the shoulders, but brachial plexus has to it actually emerges and goes underneath the tendon of pec minor and then out through the arm and shoulder. Right? You're actually increasing the length that those nerves have to go through just by having a head forward posture and a rounded back, and also too that pulls the whole shoulder girdle forward, right? right? All of those things contribute to thoracic compression syndrome manifesting somewhere in the arm or hand. Mm -hmm. And so we have to stretch pec minor, we have to make sure that the tendons can, the nerves I should say, can run freely to the fingertips, we have to straighten up the, the thoracic spine. Anyway, there's a bunch of things that we can do and we actually have to stretch the muscles and nerves and tendons through that line and this is the most important of them. The, the, what is normally what we call a, a, a bicep stretch that is absolutely sensational in helping people with any kind of impingement phenomena in the forearm or the hand. Just incredible. And it works in virtue of stretching the tendons themselves but most importantly by freeing up the course of brachial flexor pitch just for our audience who may not be familiar with the technical term, brachial plexus is the seven segmental nerves from the, which, and the nerves, the nerves are an extension of the spinal cord, the spinal cord is an extension of the brain. They are the body's eyes and ears in the arms and hands, if I can put it that way. Those seven nerves, they come together to form brachial plexus, they emerge through the scaling, the thoracic outlet, it is, as it's called, underneath the tendon, the pec minor, and then out through the arm. So the body itself can develop patterns which which then create the potential for impingement phenomena. So one is scalenes, two is piriformis, which we've already spoken about, and also three, same nerve, the, the little loop of ligament at the tibial plateau on that lateral part of the sciatic nerve. They are well accepted, completely uncontroversially accepted as, in, as potential impingement sites. But we, I mean, that, just labelling the problem doesn't help very much unless you have some kind of treatment for it, we have excellent exercises for all of those things. Right. And where can people find those exercises? And I know you have your book. We have our forums. They're free. Sure. People become members and post there, and someone will direct them to the right YouTube clip. And if you go through my YouTube channel, it's a free thing, and I've, I've explicitly and deliberately not monetized it. So you won't get any irritating ads jumping up in the middle of an explanation. I just find that just so offensive, you know. They don't just put ads at the beginning now. They pop up at odd times during the presentation. That's what's happened to me recently, anyway. So our, our YouTube clips are not monetized. 
and we have a uh, we have a Vimeo channel for that. There are pay downloads available, but they're not to do with back problems. They're to do with the mastery series, which is actually what got us together in the first place. Yeah. They're they're for people who want intermediate, advanced level flexibility. Three on the Vimeo channel. Yeah. Yes, I'll be bringing out. I'm I've, I'm about halfway through shooting the Overcome Back Pain program, and it should be finished. I would say, realistically, end next week for sure. And so, if someone goes to our Vimeo channel, then they'll be able to. No kidding. Well, I know I'm looking forward to that. I would. It does have all of our best exercises, and I'm at, I'm, I'm going to record an introduction today, which will be a half-hour program on its own, something like what we've talked about today. And there'll be three follow-along classes, and they'll only be 10 or 15 minutes long, and it basically divides those group of 13 exercises into 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 three bundles, and there'll be a chair-based sequence, a floor-based sequence, and another sequence. They simply follow the, the little classes. That, that's all I need to do. Ken, I have to say I'm really looking forward to this. Um, to seeing your, your your back pain on video, your back pain exercises on Vimeo, and uh, working through them with my clients and uh, helping her back pain. But something else I, I, I did mention is but I want to come back to this point because it's a critical one. In our system, and we're talking here of strengthening work too, not just stretching work, in our system, the whole stretch therapy system Every exercise is potential diagnosis and potential treatment. What I'm talking about are really challenges. Mm -hmm. Well, here's a challenge. I'll just tell you what I mean. So if I hold the base of my little finger like this and push the tip of my little finger back to bend the finger backwards, that's a challenge. It'll have one of a number of potential results, right? Either it'll feel nice or there won't be any major feeling except you can't get your finger back or it'll hurt. Or, and when it hurts, it'll hurt somewhere specific. That is the gold, because where that sensation is experienced, that's where we need to look more closely. That's all. And so when we're talking about hip flexors or hamstrings or quadriceps or QL or latissimus dorsi, we, each of the exercises in the program itself is a diagnosis, because the one that affects you strongly, the one or two that affect you strongly, they'll be the most important ones for you. Because if I can just tie this home to what we were talking about before, when you watch your little gymnast warming up, they're just exploring movements which don't create those sorts of effects in their bodies. That's the state we want to get ourselves to eventually, where movement is explored for its own pleasure. I mean, that's just so far away, isn't it, from the idea of back pain, but actually it's a continuum. And so we start here and we say to people, look, forget your back pain. That's what we say to people who come to the clinic. Okay, those days are gone. And, you know, people get quite offended by that because for some people, their whole self is tied up in the idea of, well, you know, I have this really serious back pain that stops me being a good father. Um, it stops me putting out the garbage at night. Um, it stops me playing with my kids. It's, it's actually what makes me me. Okay, that's the story. Once we say to someone, look, you've had these problems in the past, granted, here is how you can change that. Most people jumble over it. Major people don't want to be in pain and they don't want to be complaining to their loved ones all the time, although plenty of people with back pain do, if you show them a, a potential solution that looks like, even if it only has a, on the surface of it, because if you haven't actually experienced back pain-free life, it's always only ever going to be a dream. Once you get someone down on the floor, let's say, and you do that um, floor hip flexor stretch, which anyone can do, and they stand up and they go, well, that actually feels a bit different then you don't need to talk them into doing this exercise or that exercise or something else, they'll be all over it. The system wants to feel comfortable. Mm -hmm. 
In my, at least, at least, the majority of people do. I couldn't agree more. Absolutely. But what people have found in the past very often, and stretching is the worst offender of this. I mean, I've looked at all the research in stretching, and it's pathetic. It's hopeless. I'm, I'm talking about anyone's work in stretching. Um, and and that sounds a bit harsh, but let me explain. When you read an article in a a physiology journal or a sports medicine journal or whatever, they don't even specify with any great um, accuracy the type of stretching that they're doing, the precise alignment of the body and the joint. They never talk about how they direct the student's attention to where they're feeling something, how they can modify that feeling, how they can change that feeling. In our system, the most common thing you'll hear people say is, okay, you're in this position, what does that feel like? Feeling is actually the core determinant of what we call pain. If you cannot change the sensation in a part of a body, that's where something is stuck, literally stuck. And it's always the stuck parts of the body that experience pain, not the, not the loose parts. And so all we do, the exercises are simply challenges to show the owner of the body where their stuck parts are and at the same time show them how to do something about it. And that's it. There's nothing special about it. Nothing special. And we're going to make these dirt cheap as well, these programs. I mean, you know what the Mastery Series are like. They're 15 bucks. Yeah, I learned so much from the Mastery Series. Really, true. Well, thank you. I I seriously really appreciate that because we do get some nice feedback, and that's lovely. But um, most of the people use the system, and they're just grateful for it. They don't actually communicate to us that it's any use to us, except the people on the forums. We, We hear about their progress all the time. The workout logs on our forums are actually the most fertile part of the forum. People add, add to that every day. And, and other people comment on the aspects that are being presented in those logs. We don't have online coaching or any of that kind of stuff. But the forums functions like a kind of free online coaching. You'll, you'll make friends there, forum friends, um, who might be interested in your, let's say, size fits is your thing. That's what I'm working on at the moment. I want to get my size fits back. And so I'm, I'm, I'm about, I think, four months into a challenge now. The challenge is we're going to put up those images and show what sizes look like today. Well, I'm about this far off the ground at the moment. Mm-hmm. Sorry, it's other hand shot, about this far. But as you know yourself, that is a still a long, long nice. way to go. Yeah. But I have to say to you, it's getting easier. I used to have um, good size fits, but that was a long time ago. And I want to get, I want to get that stuff back. And I'm, I'm finding that by making myself do all the things that, that we expect all of our students to do, again, at my grand old age, that's ha- having a massive rejuvenating effect on my body. Surprise, surprise. <laughs> I mean, how stupid are we, really? We know what to do, actually. Everyone does know what to do, but we don't do it. Yes, 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 indeed. Well, Kit, I want to thank you so much for taking the time out to speak with me today about, about back pain and, uh, uh-huh. and so much more. It's a pleasure, man. It's, it's great. Unlike most people who live on the internet these days, my partner and I, we don't have secret email addresses. Everyone goes straight to our site. There's our email address. Now, if we think, if we get an inquiry that we think is actually better handled on the forums, I just write, look, please become a member and, and post your question there because actually this has been answered about 500 times before. Um, but, but this is another aspect about the internet that people are not hugely aware of. That is, there's a massive amount of information out there, but if you don't know where to find it, it may as well not exist. Right? We're, we're in, in both of our fields, this is true, right? Which is, uh, which is why I'm so glad that I found you. Like, we can have these lovely conversations. Oh, uh, well, yes. I really do appreciate it. Thank you. And I'll talk to you again soon. All right. Absolutely.